And now, a special presentation of Dinner with Racers. And now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire. With your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder Radio. Welcome to Dinner with Racers, a special episode about Tim Richmond. Hopefully by now you've heard the news that we have an Amazon Prime series doing documentary-style episodes about things like Tim Richmond and Smokey Eunuch and all sorts of fun stuff, but there's a little bit more information out there. We were able to record with a lot of people, have a lot of interviews, and decided to give you guys a little bit more information, a little more storytelling, a little more fun. And so this episode is all the backstories that we couldn't fit into the time slot about Tim Richmond. So we have a whole Amazon Prime episode dedicated to Tim Richmond, and we say this in that episode, but we'll say it again here. It is not a traditional biography. We don't necessarily get into you know a linear version of his career or anything like that. There's plenty of other shows that yeah, have done that. It's been done. Uh, we just wanted to hear about some of the Tim Richmond crazy antics. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Tim actually passed away in 1989 due to uh, complications from AIDS. That very much overshadowed some of the funnier and fun parts of Tim that honestly a lot of people just don't speak of anymore and uh, we wanted to bring that to light so we heard a lot about some of the funny things he did some of the pranks uh, but with a special attention to one particular prank essentially years ago Sean and I were doing the Alan Kowicki story which you hopefully have seen or listened to the, the special about that and we were at a restaurant we we're having lunch with old uh, Paul Andrews and uh, we saw the poster on the wall and I knew that story because Andy Lally had told me that story years prior but Sean who's very up and up on trivia and racing history and things like that, had no idea what I was talking about. And that literally began the story of how we got involved with the Tim Richmond poster. So that literally sent us down a path of over a year of deciding how we wanted to tell that story. Initially, we were thinking, hey, what if we just like another video like Kawiki, but it's an April Fool's joke about this poster. Then we've got bigger sponsorship from our partners Continental Tire and Acura to do this entire Amazon Prime series and we thought hey why don't we make a whole episode about it so this is the end of our career <laughs> you're listening to the beginning of the end but we hope you enjoyed it and uh, when it comes to Tim Richmond we uh, we want to give you some of the long-form versions of many of the folks that we sat down with so thanks to Continental Tire because uh, you guys supporting us has, has made them very happy and they've sold a lot of tires and so we were able to do this. Acura stepping up to the plate here, becoming one of our big partners, and hopefully they won't be mad at us when they saw what this episode was about. So once again, you can learn everything you want to do and see and hear these stories on Amazon Prime. Just look up Dinner with Racers and you can see a fantastic episode that ends our career. Uh, and uh, for the long form, here we go. And one final note before we start the show, uh, the entire context of these next two episodes will be for mature listening only. So if there are any young folks listening, I would not listen to this. If there are people who are easily offended, I would not listen to this. If you just don't like really sophomoreish boy humor, yeah, I wouldn't listen to this. Enjoy! Meow. All right, we're going to start in five, four... 
So Deb Williams is one of the most established figures sort of behind the scenes in, in modern NASCAR. She's done everything from writing press releases for a lot of the big agencies out there, and she worked as a journalist for places like Circle Track or RacingToday.com, where she currently works. And just generally, she's somebody who's very no-nonsense and, and just gets about her job and does it incredibly well. She also has some Tim Richmond stories. Uh, she wrote press releases for the agency uh, that uh, handled the account for one of Tim's major sponsors. And so uh, she had an insight and she's kept relationships with many people that sort of were around Tim at that time and was just generally very present in that era. And when we first reached out to her about doing this particular project, her first reaction was that she had some funny Tim Richmond stories, but didn't think we'd want to hear about probably her favorite story. And it turned out her favorite story <laughs> was in fact the story that we entirely focused on in our show. It's our favorite story. So, we sat down quite a bit. I don't think Deb Williams ever thought in her life she would spend so much time on a this, poster. This subject. <laughs> but whether she wanted to or not, she did, and uh, we cannot give her enough credit for having the patience to let us be boys and indulge our extremely childish humor. We met up with Deb Williams. Actually, I had to pick her up from her house because she had a flat tire that day, and it wasn't a Continental. I looked into it. And we got some sandwiches, and we brought them to the Charlotte Motor Speedway. We got to eat right in front of the glass up in one of the big boxes. It was really cool. Great view. I had a turkey bacon avocado sandwich. I had a chicken sandwich. <laughs> Thanks to Deb again and uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway for letting us up there because it was an amazing view and setting. Deb. Deb Williams. Yes. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Be funny. <laughs> All right. So you have been uh, in the sport in a variety of capacities for, for years. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we're here to talk about, about Tim. Um, and as I understand it, you were hired by Carolyn Rudd to sort of help handle some of the, the PR nature of, of the Folgers account. Well, actually, what happened there <clears throat> is Carolyn hired me to, to write when they need things written. For example, when they were preparing the sales manual for the Folgers sales reps, I wrote the racing section to give them a better kind of racing 101 and then the company that I worked for at that time allowed us to write press releases for people to supplement our income. And so Carolyn had asked me to write press releases for the Folgers program. Okay. So it was a ghostwriting type situation. Mm -hmm. When that when you got that position, was Tim already driving for Folgers? He was. Okay. Uh, yes, because actually when I met Tim was when I was the uh, – reporter for Charlotte uh, for United Press International okay. and I was believe I was already the Charlotte bureau manager for UPI so I covered Tim from the time he made his first appearance at Charlotte Motor Speedway until his passing okay. and so I entire and covered his entire NASCAR career as a reporter but then I would do that on the side okay. and writing the the press releases for Carolyn so you already kind of knew about him knew some of his antics so when you get the Folgers job, essentially, you know what you're in for. Well, it was rather interesting uh, because sometimes when Carolyn would want me to call and talk to Tim, it might not be at the right time because it wasn't at the track. It was always a call at night after I had gotten off work saying, I need a press release tomorrow on this, get some quotes from Tim. 
and and that's what it was, you know, or uh, this is what I want the press release on going into the press packet that's going to this track. So it was never written during the hours that I was on my full-time job. And I want to clarify there, I I was not with UPI at the time. I was with Griggs Publishing at the time uh, because that would have been grounds for dismissal at UPI. I see. But this particular company had no problem with it. And so that was uh, the way that happened there. But I guess the funniest thing that happened in writing the press releases was Carolyn had called me one night and said, I need a press release on this topic. I need it tomorrow. Give Tim a call. Here's the telephone number and get some quotes from him. So I called him. He answered the phone and he said, give me a few minutes and let me call you back. Well, he didn't call back. (laughs) Weird. And the next a driver? morning. A driver didn't get back to you when you wanted a quote for a press release. I can't understand mm, this at all. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes Brian. it happens. So I'm sitting right here, man. <laughs> I'm trying. So the next morning, he calls me. And he says, I'm really sorry I didn't get back to you last night, but I went to the bathroom and I flushed your telephone number down the toilet. And I thought, that's an excuse I have never heard. It's, I knew he didn't have a dog, so the dog couldn't be. Yeah, and, and <laughs> you know. see, you could say that in 2019, and it immediately actually adds up because you threw your cell phone in the toilet, but that wasn't a thing. Well, there was right. a cell yeah, phone. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Right. You know. yeah. mm-hmm. And he needed to call me at home, so he okay. didn't have the number because it was, you know, like 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. And... Um, there wasn't any such okay. thing as cell phones yeah, back exactly, then. Exactly. So, yeah, he said, I'm sorry, I didn't get back to you last night, but I went to the bathroom and I accidentally flushed your telephone number down the toilet. <laughs> How's that happen? I thought, well, that's an interesting <laughs> excuse, Tim. I've never had that one used on me before. Sure you did, bud. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the more things, you know, as far as a lot of, of what Tim people didn't know, I guess I had more access to that as a reporter covering things or talking with his crew chief and all later on because Harry Hyde was like my grandfather that I never had. Harry Hyde died. I mean, my grandfather's passed, both of them passed, Mm -hmm. before I was born. So I I didn't, he was like my grandfather that I never had. So Harry Hyde and I developed a close relationship. And then... The thing was, with, with Tim, the first time Tim drove here at Charlotte, of course, he was still the 1980 Rookie of the Year in the Indy 500. Right. Oh, right. Okay. And that was the big uh, publicity thing with him that everybody was using. Oh, here was this Indy car guy that was coming here, and you know he got all the publicity of riding on the side pod with Johnny Rutherford right. to the victory yeah. lane after yeah. his car ran out of gas. Right. But I don't think a lot of people realize he actually came from Sprint Car and Super Modifieds and Mini Indy and all. And I remember the first one of the first times I interviewed Tim, and he was always good about talking with me at the track, was because he I would go in the garage. He didn't like people that sat in the media center and expected him to come to them. Because he said, you know, I'm out here in 100-degree heat in the garage, or I'm out here freezing, and... This, if they won't come talk to me in my work environment, yeah. why should I go talk to them in their work environment? Right. I, I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there you go. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. And um, so uh, I asked him why he left IndyCar to come to NASCAR. 
And the answer just floored me because the response was so totally different from drivers of that era. And it was because it makes my mother feel more comfortable because she doesn't like me in the open wheel cars and she feels the stock cars are safer. And I thought, well, there's no other driver out here that would admit that. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, drivers in both era, uh, both categories in 1980s, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're talking about Foyt and Rutherford on oh, one wow. end, and, and, and then you've got, you know, guys like Earnhardt mm-hmm. and Allison. I mean, it's just like all this bravado. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And his is, nah, my mom doesn't want me to. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. That's and, awesome. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing there, you brought up Earnhardt. Of course, the northern part of Lake Norman was not really developed at that particular time. And when Tim first moved down here, Tim and Earnhardt would race their boats out on Lake Norman up there on the northern end of Lake Norman. Now, later on, in about 1985, they didn't get along all that well. But, uh, yeah, when he first moved down here, they would race their boats up there on the northern end of Lake Norman. Yeah. NASCAR in the 1980s compared to, say, 2019, in terms of it sort of being a southern sport, Mm -hmm. how different would that be from then versus now? Well, at that time, there was a lot of non-safety items here in the sport that Tim was used to at IndyCar. And Tim was the first driver in NASCAR to drive with uh, fire retardant underwear, full-face helmet, gloves. Um, You know, back then, the drivers didn't wear gloves. They wore open-face helmets. And... He actually kind of got poked at and made fun at because he wore all that. And um, he had a motor coach, which no one else did. Oh, really? Oh, no, no, no. And Bill France Jr. was animately opposed to that. Uh Uh-huh. Because his attitude was, if the drivers get their motor motor coaches, they'll go in them and hide and won't be out with the fans. 100% right. (laughs) And um, Which is what complaint we hear about now. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And um, he was also used to that medical team that traveled with IndyCar, which you didn't have in NASCAR at that time. And I know when he was in the bad crash at Pocono with Dale Earnhardt, and Dale Earnhardt got severely injured and broke his knee, and he went upside down, it was Tim and a photographer who helped get Dale out of the car. And Tim was very upset over it taking so long for medical personnel to get to that site. So... Uh, he was always wanting better medical facilities and better medical teams on the circuit. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people, I always say Tim was caught in a time warp because he loved to party, party hard. We've heard. But he <laughs> Tim was Richmond? Like, and <laughs> in that respect, he was like Curtis Turner. Okay. You know, those guys that would stay out all night partying and come in really hungover the next morning. He he lived that life, and he drove hard like them. He right, always right. drove flat out. But on the other side, he was a very cosmopolitan man with his Armani suits. He liked to associate with bikers and rock musicians. He'd hang around a lot with Huey Lewis. and um, As you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't do yeah, that? Just like what Pearson was doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he was always the, the wide open, don't challenge me. I mean, wasn't afraid of anything. Mm-hmm. 
And, of course, he got the nickname Hollywood. Right. You know, in his right. Armani suits yeah. and all. Yeah. And um, it's like uh, the women adored him and the men were jealous of him. Right. Absolutely. So. It's kind of like Sean and I. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People are so jealous of uh, <laughs> the fact that Ryan gets to hang out with me. Or, oh, they're or, so yeah. jealous of who all you all get to hang out with. That's probably yeah, true. Yeah, that's actually. probably more yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably, that's <laughs> so um, uh, kind of where I was going in terms of. Uh, in the 80s compared to say to, uh, in 2019 in terms of the reputation of NASCAR being a southern sport mm-hmm. you know guys like Harvick and Larson are from California right you know um, but in the 80s people were from North Carolina Alabama Virginia South Carolina yeah. Georgia yeah yeah pretty much except yeah. you, you had a few and then here comes Tim from Ashland Ohio and of course his background had been IndyCar and really other than AJ Foyt and Mario Andretti there hadn't been any open wheel guys that had really been successful in NASCAR. And so Tim's driving style was so wide open, balls to the wall, rub fenders, banging and all. His driving style was actually better for NASCAR than in open wheel. As his mother was right, he probably would have gotten killed in in IndyCar. But, um, you know, he he always had the, the quit wit the quick remark and always did stuff that you never really expected for instance when i went to riverside in june of 1984 to cover that race for upi and at that time the driver meetings were true driver meetings it was drivers and crew chiefs and no not open to the public like it is now and you had to have permission from a nascar official to attend the driver's meeting and so this particular day, Bill Gazaway, who was over the competition department at that time, looked at me and he said, why don't you come to the driver's meeting today? And I thought, oh, man, I really felt special. Here I had been invited to the driver's meeting. And it was in a little room that you couldn't even get everybody into. And as I started to walk in, Tim Richmond looked at me and said, so, what car are you driving today? (laughs) (laughs) Smart ass. (laughs) (laughs) And that's honestly the only thing I remember about that driver's meeting, other than the the fact that the room was so tiny that not everybody could get in, and it was hot as blue blazes because it was June in Riverside, California, you know. And he honed in on the woman. Right. Yeah. Yeah, immediately went right for it. Yeah, yeah. So... But, uh, but I mean, were, uh, before he started getting results, mm-hmm. was he an accepted part of the community? I mean, like, how was he arriving to the track compared to other guys? Well, as Harry Hyde told me once, the way Tom Cruise came up riding the motorcycle at the beginning of Days of Thunder, he said, when Tim Richmond came riding up on his motorcycle to my house, he said, that's exactly what he looked like. Yeah. And... Um, you know, initially, Tim was accepted because of his driving style, because he wasn't afraid and all. Um, I would say, I mean, Kyle Petty always associated well with, with Tim. Yeah. And I think even when some of the drivers started turning against Tim, which that started in 1985. Okay. And, um, you know... He really, that was the year that he and NASCAR were really butting heads, was 1985, and that's when he grew the long hair and the beard and and the clean-cut 
fun live and fun love and mischievous right. young man that everyone had seen here at first went away. Okay. Wasn't cute anymore. It wasn't cute anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then when uh, 1986 came along with Folgers, he cut his hair and cleaned back up, and then he he became the 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 good-looking, handsome race car driver that wasn't afraid of anything to take on anything, and was winning like crazy after he and Harry Hyde had a come to Jesus meeting at North Wilkesboro. Right. Um, but they still had their times they would get into it. Right. But Harry Hyde did not want Tim Richmond right. when Rick Hendrick hired him because he said, "I'm tired of to, to quote Harry Hyde. I'm tired of raising youngins." Uh, everybody expects me to raise their youngins, and I'm tired of it. Right. He said, I want somebody like experience, like a David Pearson or a Richard right. Petty right. for once. And, um, of course, Tim would burn the tires off. And as Barry Dodson said, his crew chief, he was hard, hard on transmissions and gears, and uh, he just would run flat out all the time. And they couldn't keep tires on him until right. they had the deal at North Wilkesboro where Harry took him up there and said, you run 50 laps away, you want to run them, and then you run 50 laps away, I want them to run, and I'll beat you every time. Right. And he did. He beat him, like, by two minutes. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. obviously been made very famous in the movie Days of Thunder. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's, yeah. let's go back a step then. So since since so many of the things you're, you're hitting on are Days of Thunder, let's let's kind of set that as a question up. Um, so do you know Jerry Punch? Oh, yeah. So you know that he wrote, directed, and produced Days of Thunder, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> you better talk to him. Yeah. We, have a, we, we interviewed him, and he, he let on that he had a little more to do than what would have been possible. Well, we believe he, yeah. So now the running joke is that he just, it was he all made his the whole movie. movie. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, exactly. Man, man. Well, let's put it this way uh, Harry Hyde was really upset because those people had talked to him, and he had talked to them, and then they didn't want to pay him for any of his story. And he he pulled me aside at Watkins Glen, and he said, "I I'll let you know when it's filed because he said either they're going to cross come across with some money, yeah, or I'm filing a lawsuit against them." Right. Yeah. And uh, Harry Hogg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they didn't yeah. do a whole yeah. lot of difference there. And uh, yeah. so I mean, you know, and and there's it was funny when I was teaching the Southern uh, Evolution of Southern Motorsports at Appalachian State University, and. I would come in at the first class and I would tell the students, which was usually the one before Labor Day weekend, okay, right. I have I have an assignment for you this weekend. And you could always see the, oh, you're ruining my weekend. <laughs> and I'd say, I want you to watch Days of Thunder. And then when you come in for the next class, I want you to ask me what scene in there you want to ask me about. Right. And I'll tell you when and where it occurred. So that's oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, then right. they were all right. They didn't yeah. have to write anything. Yeah. But, so uh, the story is, is that allegedly Days of Thunder is loosely based on Tim Richmond. Loosely based. And the reason they could never say it was based on him was because they never got rights from his parents. Oh, okay. Yeah. The the rights were never obtained from his parents, in, in his family. Yeah, right. Because his mom and dad were still alive when that came out. Mm-hmm. And... um yeah, the rights were never obtained from them. So yeah. that was the reason they could not say that. Sure. And uh, some of the things that happened in there were things that happened to other drivers. Right. Uh, or happened with Harry Hyde and other drivers. Mm-hmm. For example, you can't pit now, we're eating our ice cream. Yeah. 
that was at Darlington when Harry Hyde was Benny Parsons' crew chief. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine Benny Parsons? He's a big, big guy, guy. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. I did not know that. And that's a guy who probably would really want ice cream. <laughs> oh, he loved his ice yeah, cream. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Deny that, man. That's why he's so mad. Yeah, so... So Cole Trickle rides into the big first test in the motorcycle, and this is actually kind of how Tim Richmond showed up. Well, not to the test, but sure. at Harry's house, right. which where Harry's house was and the, all the property that Harry Hyde owned and where he was located is now where all of Hendrick Motorsports sits. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. okay. That property was all owned by Harry. Right. And Harry was out on his tractor right. when Rick Hendrick approached him. Right. But he didn't have the big two-story farmhouse and all like all it was in the nonsense, movie. Yeah. So. Uh, Cole Trickle's crew chief was named Harry Hogg. Right. Tim Richmond's crew chief. Harry Hyde. Mm-hmm. Weird. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. And then uh, I'm just trying. I'm just making kind of a list. Of right. 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 Um, and then very famously, Harry Hyde did do the 50 laps your way, 50 laps my at way at North Wilkesboro. Mm-hmm. And that was how he finally got Tim Richmond to listen to him because Tim just would not listen to him. And, uh, you know, it was after they had done that, 50 my way, 50 your way, that they went to Pocono. And Harry told Tim that he could pass on the outside and win because he had special tires. Mm -hmm. And as Harry later told me, there wasn't anything special about them. They were just the same old tires. But that's 100%. That actually happened with Harry Hyde and Tim Richmond. Yeah, yeah. And that was at Pocono. And, um, of course, Tim was the first person to ever pass on the outside going into turn three at Pocono. And it was that day when he won the race. But... um, yeah, so some of that stuff, it's just like in the movie where the driver had the the brain issue right. yeah. that he couldn't <clears throat> drive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was based off of, off of the blood clot that was on Buddy Baker's brain. Wow. Oh. That's what that was based off wow. of. Jerry Punch nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but, um, you know, the, the thing was, Tim, for example, he would always... He was a very. Compa- it, it's it's really. <laughs> this is exactly what we were envisioning. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is perfect. Um, there were there were two sides to Tim Richmond, and maybe that was because he was a Gemini. Okay. Oh, all right. Um, all right. Sure. We'll follow. But um, you know, at at the track, he was the one that he was pure Hollywood, mm-hmm. flashy, flamboyant, hard charging racer bar holes none anything but then he could be a very compassionate man away from the track and you're just like that's tim richmond right uh two examples one is at dover one year he was in a restaurant when a hobo came in and so when tim ordered his steak he ordered the hobo his steak okay well the panhandler got to crying Hmm. And the reason he did was he had no teeth, so he couldn't eat a steak. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So Tim ordered a lot of ham, uh, a lot of cheese, grilled cheese sandwiches <coughs> for him. Oh, yeah. To take back to his place. Right. The next day, he went and bought a hot plate for the man and took it to where the man lived. Oh, yeah. Every time they went back to Dover, Tim checked on that man. Wow. And then in 19, the summer of 86, 
It was a horrendously hot time here in the Carolinas, drought. Mm-hmm. And the farmers, were lo- they were losing their feed for the cattle. They, the cattle were dying. Sure. So in one of the off weekends, a group of the truck drivers for the race teams got together and they created what's known as the Hayride 500. Okay. And it was where 18 wheelers left out of here at the, from the Speedway, mm-hmm. Charlotte Motor Speedway, and went to Ohio to pick up hay to bring back for the farmers here in the Carolinas I so see, their cattle yeah. would have something to eat. Right. Tim Richmond was the only driver who helped drive a rig and went on that entire ride up there, got the hay, and came back. There were some other drivers here to to start. Sure. But Tim was the only one that that went uh, when the with the eighteen wheelers the whole way. Huh. And of course, he was around when Stroker <coughs> Race was being filmed oh, yeah. here as yep. well. And yep. you know, one of my favorite photos uh, is of Tim with Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine Tim Richmond and Burt Reynolds hanging out. <laughs> Tell me that building doesn't ex- yeah. just yeah. burst into flames. Oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. And of course, he was Tim was so hot in driving with his record and all. Yeah, eighty six was the only time the National Motorsports Press Association has ever given co driver of the year awards. Mm-hmm. And the first ballot took, and Tim Richmond and Dale Earnhardt were tied. They took a vote again, and they were still tied <laughs> after a second ballot. Yeah. So that's when the NMPA said, well, we'll just give it to both of them. Mm-hmm. But the Charlotte Observer did a really cool photograph of Tim on the front stretch at Charlotte Motor Speedway in that he got dressed in one of his Armani suits and was standing on the <laughs> finish line, and they set straw on fire okay. behind him. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's a great photo. Yeah, I'm sure awesome. you've seen it. It is. It really is. And it turned actually they made it into a poster. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's on topic. So, uh, <clears throat> what exactly was the Winston? The Winston was created by series sponsor R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company at that time, and it was what's now known as the All Star Race. Okay. And the first year that it was held was 1985. And, of course, Darrell Waltrip won it, and his engine blew as he crossed the finish line, which everybody's sitting in the press box going, well, something was illegal on that engine. He blew that one on purpose. Right, right. <laughs> Missed the shift. The clutch yeah. and, and blew it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was it. And then the next year, originally, as it was designed, they were going to move it from track to track. Mm-hmm. So it went to Atlanta right. in 1986 yeah. and was a – disaster to put it bluntly okay because they had it on mother's day weekend and nobody came weird weird in the south (laughs) (laughs) so anyway that uh it moved back to charlotte in 87 and it's it's was it's been at charlotte ever since okay so how would you get involved in the all-star race as a driver like what what did it take to get in back then there's a little different criteria now Mm -hmm. but at that point in time you had to have either won a race the previous year or a race up until time for the all-star race okay right so 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 basically if you're a winner in the recent past you're going to be involved in the winston well not the recent past it was specifically the previous, previous year, year or, and up to or that up year. Okay. So uh, here that's in May what it 2019, was then. it be anybody from the 2018 season or up until this weekend. Yeah. 
uh, well, actually, it's kind of been altered now because right, if, right. if you've that, won in that time, uh, in that time frame, that's yeah. the way yeah. it would have yeah. been. Okay, yeah. Now, if you've ever won an all-star race and oh, you're an active driver, you're yeah. in We've been it. joking about this. Yeah, yeah right. Now it's yeah. 35 cars get in for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all-stars. Well, they're like, how do it's we do? all-stars. Yeah, it's everybody but Alex Bowman. some stars. Yeah. It's all stars. It's all stars. Yeah. Well, everybody but Alex Bowman. Yeah. Oh, poor. I, don't know. I didn't make the rule. They did. <laughs> what? And, yeah, and back then, now back another thing back then, uh, in the eighties when it first started, uh, of course there was no such thing as stage racing, but they had the open, which was for everybody else. Okay. And only the winner of the open advanced. Mm-hmm. So you only had one shot. So you might have 30 cars in the open, but only one person advanced. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. And then because this is kind of their what is now known as the All-Star Race, but at the time it was the Winston, which mm-hmm. is your main sponsor of the series. So it's obviously right. a pretty big deal. There's a lot of promotion behind that. Oh, event. yeah. So they would do all sorts of different things to promote that race. Is that right? Well, they would. And, of course, it was connected into what was then World 600 or mm-hmm. – uh, Coca-Cola World yep. 600 week. And, and that was similar to how it is now where it was the all the, the Winston would be the weekend before. And Actually, it was like well, the first Winston was the day before the 600. Mm. Oh, wow. It wasn't even on a separate okay. weekend. And yeah. this was before you had 17 cars that people would. Uh, <laughs> per team. Yeah, per yeah. team. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Where, where, yeah. And, of up. course, back then you also had the 600 Festival and the 600 Festival Parade. Mm. And worn out that week. Tim, Tim was always, I mean, all the drivers, when the parade first started out, because they were trying to, uh, the people from the Charlotte Motor Speedway had gone to Indianapolis to study how they did the Indianapolis mm-hmm. 500, mm-hmm. and the parade was big up yep. there. So they started the 600 Festival of Lights Parade. And then you always had the Children's Charity Ball, mm-hmm. uh, which has kind of changed a little bit. You still have the 600 Children's Charities. Okay. Um, Wednesday night before the 600. Mm-hmm. But used to, you could buy individual tickets to it. You can't do that anymore. Okay. Uh, it's a sell-the-table type right, deal. Right, right, right. But, uh, yeah, so Tim would be at the 600 Festival Parade of Lights. He would be in it. He would be at the Children's Charity Ball. And, um, you know, that suited everyone just fine. Yeah. yeah. Right, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we got our guy here. So to be part of the Winston, so, um, you know, the – through the years, the, the sort of Winston poster was almost like a badge of honor. That if you were in that poster, oh, yeah. you were in the all-star yeah. race. Exactly. You are one of the biggest names in NASCAR. Mm-hmm. Right. So everyone, everybody <coughs> wanted to be in that poster. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do you know where the we're going with this? Poster. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's when Tim decided he would want to create a little interesting mark yeah. on that poster. Okay. So, well, um, yeah. so when you and I talked on the phone. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is the best. I was like, we're, we're looking for funny Tim Richmond stories. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, there's one, but I, I, I don't think you can talk about it. I'm like. That's kind of a big focus of what we're yeah. doing in this episode. Um, is it about the poster? Yeah. 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 But the interesting thing was, see, they always handed out those posters for free at the track. Right. Okay. Right. To people who would come through the gate. Right. So, so when was that photo taken? No, normally. That photo would have been taken. Well, it would depend on the schedule. Yeah. You know, it would depend on whether there was a r- actual points race the right. weekend before the the Winston because they had to get everybody in there and I was trying to remember if we found out about Tim's exposing himself in that poster after they had caught it because they had run 
I've always been told they ran several copies of it before they discovered the situation. Yeah. Well, so let, let's back up and tell yeah. sort of the, the, the history of the poster, the, not the Tim Richmond part of the poster, uh-huh. just how this poster is taken. Like, I'm yeah. just curious, like literally the process yeah. of it. So, yeah. So let's not worry about the Tim component. Oh, just yet. Okay. So, okay. Okay. So, so the Winston would happen in May. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you remember the specific year, but historically, when do you think they would gather for a photo like well, that? Well, like I said, it would depend on the schedule. Okay. Because if they didn't, they would have to have some way to get the, the driver in. If there was a point race the weekend before the Winston, right. you know, but they wouldn't have had time to have printed everything. I was about to say, this right. is 1987. 80s. So, yeah. well, 85, 86. So the first one was 85. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's not like today where you can immediately get into Photoshop, get it ready, and right. go to print Right. No, you couldn't do yeah. that yeah. then. Yeah. And so my guess is they probably took that photo in early May mm-hmm. okay. mm-hmm. to print so. it. And so uh, it's a quick turnaround time, especially oh, in yeah. the 80s, because oh, yeah. right. they got to process the film. Mm-hmm. They've right. got to they've got to develop it, turn it into so and get all the drivers together. Okay. Right? Yeah, exactly. Have them all that the same place at the same time. That would have been harder. Hey, that was the hardest part. Instead of developing and getting it printed, was getting the drivers getting all together in one place. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right, yeah. But the thing is, the drivers then had such a different attitude than the ones now. Everybody. I guess Dale Earnhardt's sister explained it to me this way was when Bill France Sr. was in charge, or excuse me, Bill France Jr. was in charge, we all knew the direction the sport was to go in and what everybody was to do. Mm-hmm. And so basically when NASCAR and RJR said, we need you here at this time, you better be there. Right, right. There was no issue. Mm-hmm. You were there. Yeah. And... Um, so they were there they took the photo and then the position or the of course the drivers changed every year sure but now for instance the poster that came out the year that they ran the race at night for the first time in 1992 one hot night Mm -hmm. what they took there was a picture of the race at night or the track at night right and then they had headshots of each driver right yeah. around yeah. the poster yeah exactly. so it changed from year to year yes. Sure. Sure. yes but the particular year that tim was in it you had drivers sitting in front and you had drivers standing yeah behind. two rows of yeah, yeah. right so, right so so it's, it's probably on a race gathering weekend it's probably right before they're about to go out on track or sometime when they're all in suits. Or well, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be right before they were ready to go out on track. It would have been, it was more like a studio Specific, shot. Specific, yeah. yeah. yeah like, because with R.J. Reynolds being based in Winston-Salem then, and all the teams around here and all the drivers would, would li- were living here. Right. You know, the only one who wasn't living here that was Bill Elliott. Mm-hmm. And Bill Elliott was a pilot. Yeah, so, so he just fly, could fly anywhere. Not a okay, so... If, if Bill Jr. basically said, you're going to be here on a Wednesday to mm-hmm. take the studio shot, they're all going to show up. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. They would. But or if, you would have trouble getting through inspection the next week. Exactly. Okay. you got to know you got to know where your bread's buttered. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but because it's just one master photo, and mm-hmm. it's before photo retouching or compiling is like it is today. Right. You physically had to have everybody in the same place in the same time. Exactly. Everyone's got to be somewhere. So it probably happened very quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they're doing this about just a couple of weeks before the event. Oh, yeah. So there's no lot, there's not a lot of Leeway. time to evaluate, a lot of time to oh, process. Right. Forget the poster for a second. Um, in NASCAR in that era, you came more from the, the media side, but 
for say a, a marketing agency or a PR agency, what was the oversight like? So in 2019, if we're gonna have a major sponsor, there's 17 layers of management we have to go through to before anything goes on the internet or, right. or whatever. Well, there's certain <clears throat> where there wasn't that many layers. Okay. Uh, since R.J. Reynolds was doing it, I'm sure there was at least two, maybe three people okay. at R.J. Reynolds. Two or Reynolds. three people. People. Yeah. Not two or three teams of people and but, 17 conference calls. Right. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> that sounded like a little bit of a personal that thing. That might there. have been a little projection. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I'm sure NASCAR looked at it, you know. Yeah. I would have expected probably Bill France Jr. to look at it. Right. Uh, and but I in those days, it was Bill France Jr. And, a, and Ralph and a, Seagraves running thing at R.J. Reynolds. Right, but not the entire fifth floor. No. Yeah, yeah. looking no, no, at no, it. No, yeah, no, yeah, no. A panel of people going through it. Right. No, and, you know, uh, R.J. Reynolds had a uh, it had its sports marketing enterprises, which was that division for R.J.R. And, of course, not only did they handle the publicity for NASCAR, and the Winston Cup circuit, but the Winston Racing Series, which was the short track series, the drag racing series. At one time, they were in rodeo. They were in the Virginia Slims tennis tour. And so, you know, they had people that were assigned to different responsibilities there. So my guess would be, and I'm guessing because I don't really know what the flow line flow chart was, but I would say probably whoever was in charge of the photo would approve it or look at it. And then probably Ralph Seagraves would look at it. And then Bill France Jr. would look at it would right. be my guess. Sure. So maybe three to five people at the I most. I wouldn't think any more than that. And, and not you know. trained professionals in the... Yeah. Looking at photos for things that shouldn't be there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's not their yeah. forte. And for an event that's got to go to print because print times at that mm -hmm. in that era yeah. were much longer. So this is a semi-rushed project with maybe three to five people looking at it. Right. I yeah. wouldn't think any more than that. Right. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> so we're going towards the Winston, and now these posters are getting handed out. Where do these posters normally go? Were they to dealerships were they to fans no normally they were handed to the fans okay. when they came through the gate okay. and of course the media always got one mm -hmm. and um i don't know how many i don't think any were handed out at the track okay i don't know how the ones that were printed or how many were printed before it got caught that uh so it wasn't like you came through the gate and here no a free poster. Uh -uh. Okay. no it got okay. caught before that uh, there wasn't that. I don't like. I said I don't know how many were printed huh. because I didn't get we know one of two. them. <laughs> <laughs> I get two from ten miles away. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, but uh, I don't know of anyone in the media that got one. So, from when it went out to public availability to when people started noticing something was peculiar about this poster what would you say was the timeline for that well i actually think it got caught before it got out to much of the public so i would say because all the ones that were handed out at the track were had been corrected oh that, yeah that quickly uh, okay. that quickly okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. so i would say that maybe it got caught before more than a hundred copies of the poster were run hmm. would be my guess because, and I, I don't know if maybe the people that saw it 
were supposed to destroy it and didn't. Right. Well, why would and you? It got out, you know. <laughs> and oh, here's something I'll give you. I'll give this to my friend or this to my friend mm-hmm. and all. But um, yeah, because I went back and looked at my poster that I got. Right. And it's right. been corrected. Sure. Okay. So I don't think I think they were caught. But well, they had to be caught before right. they were distributed. Okay. Because you couldn't have reprinted that many on race day and then given them out, you know. Right. So it was caught before they were they got out to the public. But some of the ones that, that were printed did make their way into people's hands. Sure. Nowadays, like uh, a politician or a celebrity will tweet or post or do something they shouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. And it becomes like wildfire. You know, it oh, gets yeah. spread around like crazy. How quickly did this get out internally amongst the, the industry side that it had happened? I'm trying to remember. It seems like some of us heard about it the, that weekend mm-hmm. because somehow Tom Higgins with the Charlotte Observer knew about it. Okay. And I remember him talking about it to his close friend, Steve Wade, who was my boss at the time. And he was our executive editor at Scene. And I remember them talking about it. And then everybody started looking at their posters to see if they had one. Did you get it? Did you get them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't get it. Are you I'm sure? Like, what is this? <laughs> Are you sure this is right or is this just a rumor that was started? Right, you know? right, right. Because uh, you know, initially you didn't know if it was a rumor that somebody right. started right. to make Tim look bad. Ah, yeah. Or to like make him look kinda, bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We know where I come from in yeah. PR. I was like, jeez, <laughs> jeez, man. I mean, to, to, um, you gotta, I call it the high school mentality of the garage area, but you gotta remember that it, people, if they're jealous of somebody, they're gonna start something or sure. cause problems yeah. or whatever for somebody. Yeah. So, you know, here Tim yeah. is having a, a great season and, Winning everything and in contention for the championship, and if somebody wants to cause problems or discord yep. on the team yep. or whatever, so you didn't know initially. That was my first thought: was that somebody was just starting this as a rumor, right? Just to cause trouble and sure. make him look bad. But then I was trying to think where I saw one of them. <laughs> And I don't remember where it was. And then it was just like, oh, it really did happen. Okay. It wasn't just a rumor. Right. Yeah. So at that point, are you still writing for Folgers? I, I don't. <laughs> well, it, if it was 86, so I had to have still been doing press releases okay. when Carolyn requested them. Right. So is there no, any I don't of, remember. Yeah, there wasn't a anything. like a death calm everybody into no, the into the building. No, we got no, no, no. Okay. You like you never had to write like a public apology no. okay. on this Okay. How no. times have changed. Yes. Yeah. I, I think it was just kind of like it. Maybe if we ignore it, it'll go away. Yeah, sweep it under the rug a little bit. It yeah. won't end up yeah. on TV 30 years later. Yeah. <laughs> Two sports car idiots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it was a situation where really the only ones that, unless you see one mm-hmm. of the posters mm-hmm. or somebody from that era mentions it, nobody really knows anything about it right. because there was no social media. Sure. Yeah. There was no internet. Yeah. It wasn't out there forever and ever and ever in cyberspace. And um, so now lots of times when you bring it up, people look at you like, 
No, that wouldn't have happened. That could have never gotten by. And thus we are here. <laughs> this is literally this how whole this thing happened. started this way because I'd never heard the story. Uh-huh. And there was uh, what was Lancasters. <laughs> Lancasters. We're, we're up at Lancaster's, oh, Lancaster's Park. Yeah, and they've got you know just like the Dale Earnhardt Wrangler bus in there, and they've got hoods mm-hmm. from every race car in the whole nine yards. And we were yep. interviewing uh, Paul Andrews for our Alan Kowicki video we right did. and uh, as we're leaving you know we're all packed up we're done with everything i see the poster on the wall and i'm looking and i'm like oh i'm pretty sure and sean has no idea what i'm doing or why i'm <laughs> so enamored with this poster and it's not pointed out there's not lights on it or anything. it's just right. a million posters on the wall and i'm looking and from across the restaurant the waitress goes yeah that's it that's an original <laughs> and i'm like yeah like we're celebrating and sean has no idea what's happening and so that's when I told him the story that I, as I knew it, and it was like, wait, what? <laughs> so what I realized is that if Sean is in the industry and he's very well re- researched on all forms uh-huh. of motorsports and he doesn't know the story, that means a lot of fans at home might not know the story. And so that led us here. So with your experience. For 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> looking at one dumb story. With, <laughs> So with your experience and actually knowing Tim and working around Mm -hmm. him, is it in line with his antics that this is something he would do? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Take a minute to think about it. Really, just just dig deep, come up with an answer. Okay. 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 So uh, let's go through a couple of the myths, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Do you think it's his thumb? No. Okay. Did he have a cane at that time? No. Because of illness? No. Okay. Mm -mm. Okay. So no, this this was the time when he and Humpy, when he got mad at Humpy Wheeler for giving him a pace car after he won the pole here, and they act like they've been in a boxing match with each other, and they put boxing gloves on and paint red stuff on their face like they've been bleeding, like they've been in a wait. You're telling the story like we know it. What fight? Yeah. What are you talking about? I, I, um, this is a new episode. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, okay so uh, mm. let's look because if. Oh, I, I was just, you know, from, from bringing up why stuff. he would do this. Well, that's what I'm saying. So yeah. because, um, so it sounds like it, uh, at the time there was sort of a unique relationship between Humpy Wheeler, who obviously ran all things uh, related to Charlotte, and uh, and Tim. Well, Humpy had a unique relationship with all the competitors okay. because back in the '60s and all, Humpy had been the motorsports representative for Firestone. Okay. And so when Bruton regained control of the track in 1975 and convinced uh, Humpy to come run it with him, they, um, you know, Humpy was the one that lots of times when young drivers would come in, they would go to Humpy for advice. Humpy was like a mentor to me as well. So this particular time, the person who won the pole was going to get a Thunderbird. Okay, like a pace car? Like, it was supposed to be a new Thunderbird. Oh, okay, all right. Well, when Tim won the pole and got the car, it was one of the Thunderbirds that they had used here at the track that had like 23,000 miles on it (laughs) and a cigarette burn in the back. Right, right, so it was old gym bag. Well, no, no, I mean, it was a nice car, but it just wasn't new. Yeah. And so... Tim had gone to Humpy irate about it. Yeah. And we on the media had all heard it was going on, and there was this, Tim was mad, and he had gone to Humpy, and of course, Humpy's got an Irish temper, and and so what they end up doing, uh, 
they decided to do a deal like they had been in a boxing match uh-huh. up here in Humpy's office and had gotten in a fight. Yeah, right. And they come walking through the garage area, both of them wearing boxing gloves, <laughs> with their arms around each other. Yeah. And they have put, I don't know if it was red lipstick or what it was, <laughs> but they had put it on their faces like they had been bleeding and right. got cut and all. Right. And, and it was just like, guys, you know. <laughs> it was, I mean, you had to cover it. You couldn't ignore it. You know, like Blaney and Larson do now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> so in that in that era, there's already a precedent for these two to kind of be screwing with each other a little bit. It's entirely plausible that he had a little extra motivation to pull a prank in in a big promo like this. Well, I don't think he pulled the prank on the Speedway or RJR. I think it was because of his uh, often uh, arguments with nascar i think it was done more as a a prank towards them okay okay than the speedway or humpy or or anybody like that was at that time because obviously this was before all the Mm -hmm. controversies with uh, medical stuff um was there already a tumultuous nascar relationship oh yeah how so it had started probably in 85 uh, and the first time i remember it was at martinsville and Bill Gasway was running the competition side then. And Tim Brewer was Tim's uh, Richmond's crew chief. And they had gotten penalized in the race, and Tim didn't think it was fair. And when the race was over with, he jumped out of the car, and we were all busy riding. And the next thing we knew, Tim Richmond had come in the back of the press box and had grabbed the microphone, the PA microphone, and announced to us that he was going to have a press conference. <laughs> he and didn't go through any PR folks. Oh, no, no. Well, there no. wasn't then. Yeah, right, 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 right. But you, you know, know not to go do that. Yeah, you don't just grab the mic and start talking on all that you just gave They don't let you idea. do that at the game. <laughs> so yeah. thank you for that. And so th- this, in Jump this cut. era, yeah. And, and everybody was just kind of, we just turned around and looked like, okay. Um, but, you know, in this particular, in the 80s, First of all, the only people who had PR reps were the auto manufacturers. Okay. So even like an Earnhardt or a Waltrip didn't have a PR person. Mm-mm. Okay. And um, that came along as more corporate America became involved. Okay. So when Budweiser, well, actually when Daryl was with Junior Johnson, okay. uh, Jack Aroot was his PR rep. Okay. But they were employed by more of the sponsor right and the sponsor you didn't have pr people employed by the race right. team so it's sure, not like sure. tim didn't have a pr person it was no. the folders account correct our buddy tr yeah exactly right. it was With the miller right. account Miller-Tier exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so that was the situation they were marketing people you know mm-hmm. and then that was one thing that caused the rift a lot between in the late 90s and early 2000s was when each driver started getting a PR person and started blocking media access yep. to uh, the drivers. Yep. Yep. And those of us who had been around for a long time and had built the relationships with the drivers and crew chiefs and used to just going to them right. and got cut off, there was a, a big problem there. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. And uh, But back in that 80s era, you had your marketing companies and they took care of the hospitality and the sponsors and they would do press kits 
Now, Richard Petty had Harvey Duck at STP, and STP usually had somebody. But other than that, mm-hmm. um, you know, when uh, Daryl was sponsored by Budweiser, he had Bob Latford, but Bob Latford was employed by Budweiser. Right. Yeah. You know, it yeah. wasn't race teams and all like yeah, they have sure, now. Sure, sure, sure. And there was very few people that you usually you just went to the driver and said hey i need to talk to you for a story and right. when can i talk to you what time right how much time you need ah 15 minutes okay come talk to me after practice that's right how yeah. a sports car could be now <laughs> <laughs> so um <clears throat> was to your knowledge was it ever confirmed by tim what he did not to my knowledge okay yeah was it ever denied by tim not to my knowledge all I care about. was so Neil Bonnet. <laughs> but I never asked him either. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, right, right. So Neil Bonnet seemed like an awesome guy. He was. How was his sense of humor in general? Oh, it was great. Okay, so if somebody did something like the poster suggests, how would he handle that? Like, do you think he would have been like, "Come on, man," or would he actually find it funny as well? No, that era of drivers would not, because they were all trying to change the image of the sport Uh and they were trying to grow the sport and get it more out nationally sure which was bill french jr's objective Mm -hmm. and they would have been upset particularly as good as rj reynolds was to the sport and the money that it poured into the sport Uh, they would have been upset with him for doing that to rjr right yeah you're biting the hand that feeds you exactly yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. They, they wouldn't have thought it was funny okay You've also pointed something out that, that I find unique. So when Tim first came into the sport, it sounds like he was far more accepted than maybe we would have thought. Right. You know, yeah. Yeah, he was the IndyCar yeah. guy. Yeah. He was a wealthy guy that wasn't from the South, mm-hmm. but he still seemed to sort of ingratiate himself. It wasn't until he started winning races or start kind of dusting it up with guys on track. No, that, okay. no. It was in 1985 when he started becoming so belligerent to NASCAR. Okay. Okay. And that was when things started happening in his lifestyle, and a lot of things started happening in his life that the the drivers that were very um, careful about the image of the sport. Mm-hmm. That's when the problem started. Okay. So the thing that might upset drivers, it wouldn't be necessarily wrecking each other into three. Oh no 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 no. no but no, it, it's but just it would be a bad name for the sport. Correct. Yeah. It, it would be walking into a press center. And saying, "Hey, we're gonna have a, I'm gonna have an impromptu press conference to badmouth NASCAR." Yeah. Somebody like Walter Earnhardt wouldn't have appreciated that. Right. Well, I was gonna say it sounds like it's more of the off-track stuff that he was doing wrong. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, he was upset with NASCAR because of the safety, the lack of safety mm-hmm. then, right. um, the lack of medical that what he deemed, what he perceived as. Right. Uh, good medical quality traveling with the circuit yep. week in and week out uh, decisions that were made that perhaps went against him mm-hmm. um, I actually have a quote from Harry Hyde uh, where Tim Richmond told him he wasn't going to bow and paw to them uh-huh. and Harry said I don't I'm not asking you yeah. to bow and paw to him but just be considerate and understand yeah you know, and uh, there was that that attitude of I don't 
I don't cow down to anybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was where the problem started. Sure, yeah, right. you got to respect a little bit of the elders and the way yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But in, in, yeah. so in terms of his peers, other drivers sort of by 85, 86, kind of having enough of him, what were some of the activities? So, yeah, he's he's confrontational with NASCAR, but, It you was know, his partying. It, it was the party. Right, okay. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, some of the things that went on at the, the parties okay. and, and um, Because, yeah. like... He's synonymous with things like girls, but I can't imagine he was the only guy in that garage. Uh, it didn't had, have anything did to do with women. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, <laughs> it was other activities. Yeah. 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 The big thing that we've come across <laughs> is on social media and different parts of the internet, people like just completely deny that it's actually him exposing himself. And it's very very hard denials you know just like no it's not that yeah, it's this, not what you think it is this is a hill they're gonna die yeah on. And it's very yeah. strange that they're so passionate about saying that it's not what it very clearly looks like well i think that's because when a person is a fan of somebody in the sport they would fight for them mm-hmm. and they feel like people are trying to disgrace him disgrace his name mm-hmm. disgrace his talent because he was an extremely talented race car driver mm-hmm. and they are trying to destroy him and that's the reason people are so animate about there was no way this would ever happen sure, sure. and it's it's people that are taking up for tim right and you know it could be that when tim did it he was clowning around and never thought the picture would get out. Right. You know? Right. Or that he was behind the guy's yeah, ear. Like, yeah. Wasn't gonna, you know. I'll tell my buddies later. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. I, I don't, I mean, but the people that are going to deny, yeah, they're the ones that, and, and I'll be honest with you, I'm good friends with his sister, and I've never even asked her huh. about it. Yeah. Did, you know, did he really do it? Is it that is? Right. Because it's just never occurred to me. Yeah. You've <laughs> to never thought me. you'd spend this much time No, not really. <laughs> it's like the fourth person to say I that to us. We have problems. <laughs> so you're the problem. No. Got it. So but, uh, kind of where I'm going with the, him. Uh, I mean, nobody else out there could drive a Monte Carlo at 240 miles an hour, which he did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but to your point, like if it was maybe sort of a, if you were trying to look into a larger reason why he'd do something like this, it could be that he was kind of can't, well, thumbing his nose in other ways uh, at, at NASCAR. But it also could be because he was in a room of his peers who at this time were maybe a little more confrontational with him. Could it also have been a way of him just sort of irritating him? Because once you're kind of already in that antagonistic position you're going to continue to antagonize yeah right well especially if you think you're better or bigger than everybody yeah yeah, yeah well you know and and he was just a mischievous right guy right i mean he was a fun loving partying mischievous person the look on his face is very much of the look of look what i'm getting away with uh-huh. you know like that's oh, the funny yeah. thing to me is the look on his face is just like so proud of himself mm-hmm. for what he's about to pull off mm-hmm. and i never met the man obviously but based on everything I've ever read and heard about him. It sounds way in line with his personality and sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll put it this way. I don't know if it happened for sure, but I wouldn't put it past him. Okay. All right. So one of the things we've learned over the last couple of years from doing the podcast is that sometimes you don't want the truth to get in the way of a great story, you know, because 
people that actually live the story will tell it back to us differently as it's been recorded. Mm-hmm. And you think, do I want to correct this person who's done all these cool things with the dates and times of what they're telling me? Or do I just want them, their version of the story is good enough? Well, if there's one thing I've learned as the years have progressed, and particularly going to Legends events, the racing, the older these people get, the better the racing gets, the closer it gets. <laughs> right. And they are remembering it the way it was to them in their mind. Exactly. So it it may not have might come might not be regurgitated yeah. the way it actually happens sometimes. Right. right. But as you both know and as we all know, that many times in racing the truth is stranger than fiction because a lot of the truth in racing, people would say, that's no way that could ever have happened. Right. With something like this, as a journalist especially, is the truth more important than an awesome story? It is to me. Okay. Bobby Allison would disagree. I know. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a journalist. <laughs> that's fair. But Bobby's a racer. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <clears throat> and that's one thing you have to keep in mind. Yeah. It's just like when I first started covering the sport, a veteran motorsports writer told me, he said, now you remember one thing. They use us just like we use them. And they don't tell you something because they like you. They tell you something because they have another ulterior motive and it might be they're in contract negotiations (laughs) it might be they want to get rid of their driver or they want to get rid of their crew chief or they want to upset the team he said but they always have a reason for everything they tell you and you know as a reporter there's two sides to every story but you have to remember in racing there's four to five sides to every story (laughs) because you have the driver the crew chief the team owner the sponsor, and the sanctioning body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I look at the poster. Ryan looks at the poster. <laughs> like, there's no optical illusion to me. It's it's mm-hmm. pretty clear what it is to me. Mm-hmm. And yet we ask the – we've asked so far two people that were in that poster, mm-hmm. and they're both emphatically saying that's not – it's not it. They're not saying it's a cane or anything, but they're saying he, that he didn't do this. Right. Why would if, – if it was real – and um, and he did do this. Why would they care 30 years later that they'd be emphatic that it wasn't the case? I think it would be embarrassing to them to think that another man would do that in front of all these men. Really? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, they also wouldn't want to admit right. to anybody doing like that that would harm the sport, harm the sponsor, harm, fun. you know. Yeah. To them, it, it, I mean... Other stuff that happened, whether they were racing rental cars or driving cars into swimming pools or whatever, it really wasn't being a very crude, derogatory symbol towards the the sport. Okay. You know, Mm -hmm. and and I think it's, it's a situation where you would want to think they all had more respect for themselves right the sport the sponsor the fans in particular to not do something like that Mm -hmm. i guess the way you're putting it so in my mind it's a childish prank (laughs) and childish pranks among race drivers are just part of the job um but 
that's a, that would be you, considered a vulgar that's childish <laughs> prank. And, and that's, that's kind of where you're going. So, so and whereas I interpret it as just a childish prank like you would with a rental car, you're saying it's both vulgar and because it was in a sort of a public setting by virtue of being a fan mm -hmm. poster that it went beyond just childish prank. And Correct. therefore, some of these guys from a different era than when we grew up would just say, no, I, I want no part That's of over this. the uh, Exactly. Yeah. It's over the line. It's over the line. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I think where you were, when you said when we look at it, we think it's absolutely what it looks like it is. You mean in person. When you yeah. see the actual poster in person, it is very mm -hmm. clear that it's not a cane or a thumb. Yeah. Uh, when you see it on the internet, it's not as crystal clear as to what the image is, just from you know grainy. Yeah, and I've all never that. seen it on the internet. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's still pretty obvious to me what it looks like. Uh -huh. But when we were looking at it earlier in real life, you're like, yeah, that's exactly it's what pretty that obvious. Is. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the second sort of extended recording we wanted to play in our first episode about Tim as we set up sort of his biography and some of the background story behind it uh, is Tom Jensen. Now, Tom currently works for the NASCAR Hall of Fame. However, we really don't want to implicate that for this episode because we like Tom and we want him to keep his job. Uh, but Tom is also a longtime journalist, just sort of industry insider. So he knows all the players, knows all the backstories, and he's by trade a very good storyteller. So we thought it'd be good to get some context from him about just what the poster was and some of the great Tim Richmond stories that have been forgotten about. He also wrote one of the last articles of any note about Tim Richmond on the 25th anniversary of Tim's passing. So uh, he had a lot of stories to draw from uh, based on that article. So we met at Louis Grill in Harrisburg, North Carolina. I had a chicken sandwich and Ryan had food. Take it away, Tom. We vowed to ourselves that we're not going to get you fired. We're... Hopefully we, we can can't that. promise <laughs> but um the legacy of tim richmond uh, okay forget forget the later half of things but uh if you're going to describe the character of tim richmond to a 25 year old who'd never heard of him before how would you describe tim wild man yeah totally out of control brilliant brilliant fast racer wild liver <laughs> um, you know there there are so many so many great stories about him and, and you know the tom cruise character in days of thunder was loosely modeled after him and i say really really loosely there's a scene in the movie where he goes to the airport and a taxi driver honks at him right and he backs his car into them that really happened but what happened before then was there was a guy at Hendrick Motorsports named Jimmy Johnson, Jimmy with a Y. Yeah. Not, not, not the same. Not, the, yeah, not yeah. the racer, but who was general manager of Hendrick Motorsports in the mid-'80s. Sure. And he went down to, Dayton or to Fort Lauderdale where Tim was living on a boat. And so Jimmy Johnson goes down to Fort Lauderdale and gets to Fort Lauderdale at 9 o'clock in the morning. Tim's on his boat at Pier 66, eating crab legs and drinking beer, wearing a swimsuit. And Jimmy's there to deliver a brand new Z28 Camaro, which was one of the perks for being a Chevy driver. And he says, he says, Tim, you got to take me back to the airport. So Tim says, okay. So they hop in the Z28 and Tim's going down the road through Fort Lauderdale and he sees this place called R Donuts. And our donuts was infamous because it was a topless donut shop. What? 
There were women who wore nothing from the waist up when they served their dinner. That's not a thing. That's not a thing. That's not real. It was real in the 80s. And so Tim does a U-turn across the medial barrier in his brand-new Z28. As you do. Parks out in front of there, and he and Jimmy (laughs) go in and enjoy a couple of donuts. Topless donuts. As you do. And then he gets to the airport, and then the cab driver honks him honks him to move, and then Tim backs his brand-new Z28 into the cab and shoves him back. And this car that Jimmy Johnson had literally just given to him. Right, right. It's like, thanks for signing with us. Yeah. Here's a perk. It's ruined. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. That's what I would tell a 25-year-old kid, too. Um, (laughs) And it's not your place to speak for Hendrick, but... um, the Hendrick Motorsports that we've experienced today um, is pretty conservative in terms of what they let out there PR-wise and marketing-wise. How would a guy go into a topless donut shop go over in an organization like that? I will tell you this. Rick Hendrick loved him. Really? Rick loved him. Let me, let me tell you. This might seem like a weird analogy, but... You could have three guys, and they could walk up to you, and I'll tell you the same dirty joke. And depending on the person's personality, you could either want to slug them, uh, yeah. or just kind of go, oh, God, that's lame, or laugh your butt off. Tim Richmond was the laugh your butt off guy. He could charm anybody in anything. Rick told, took him, and almost all the good Tim Richmond stories I've got, Rick told me personally, so I know they're true. Rick took him to the first sponsors meeting with Folger, Folgers, which is a Procter & Gamble company located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Not exactly the hotbed of progressive thinking. Sure. Tim shows up in a pair of cowboy boots, a pair of running shorts slid up the side, a T-shirt that says, Eat Mo Possum, and a mink coat. To a sponsor meeting. To a sponsor with meeting. With Procter and Gamble. With Procter and Gamble. And they got the deal. <laughs> you got it, you got it. I think that's why we don't have more sponsors. Right, is, right. Uh, We're we not dressing enough, that way? Yeah, we don't have enough possum shirts. Cut to. <laughs> this is where we interview you wearing that exact outfit. I get more money out of Continental. You go to Continental? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Rick told him once before the Daytona 500, you need to clean your act up. So Tim flew from Fort Lauderdale to New York to get a haircut and walked into the garage. In a wait, t- in why a did he go to New York? Wait, was the race in New York? No. Oh. This, this was before the Daytona his, 500. His stylist. The stylist was in New York. And he, so he had to go to New York. Couldn't he had to go to it. New York, and he walks into the garage wearing a $2,000 silk suit carrying a cane and a purse. Yes, he did. <laughs> yeah, he did. God bless him. Okay. And, you know, as, as, as several other people p- pointed out, those were the days where Earnhardt ruled the roost wearing his Wrangler jeans and his right. cowboy boots. Don't, don't, don't and buckle. the sport yeah. wasn't as egalitarian as it is today or, or geographically diverse as it was. I mean, it was mostly guys from the Deep South still mm-hmm. even then. Mm-hmm. And they're all looking at him like, oh, what planet is that dude from? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was this, there was a, I don't know how accurate it was, but there was a statistic I read that mid-'80s about, let's call it three-quarters plus of the paddock, was from 
North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, or Virginia, and that was it. So you got this guy from Ohio, comes from money, plus playing the part. Okay, so Rick Hendrick likes him. What was the paddock's reaction to a guy like this? Garage. Excuse me. <laughs> we were going to hear about it. God damn it. <laughs> what, was the, what was the garage reaction to this, this Ohio IndyCar guy? Well, with swag. Yeah. At one point, David Pearson punched him. Um, that doesn't happen for no reason. No, that doesn't happen for no reason. I asked Jeff Hammond about him, and he said he's such a kid. Because um, he was also really cocky, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing. Earnhardt loved him, and they loved to race each other. Earnhardt won the Coca-Cola 600 one year, 86, 87. First guy in victory lane lifting his arm up was Tim Richmond. In the famous story at Pocono, um, Richmond's leading the race and Earnhardt's second. And Tim keys his mic and says, hey, Rick, you on? To Rick Hendrick. And he says, yeah, go ahead. He goes, watch this. And so they go into the third turn and Richmond slows and lets Earnhardt pass him. And he gets right on his bumper. So he literally just sort of waves the guy by. And they go on on the straight, and he gets all the way underneath him and lifts his back wheels up off the ground and pushes him the whole length of the straight and lets him, backs off and lets him go just before the corner and then passes him before the next lap is complete. Even Anybody this else? Is Dale Earnhardt. This is yeah, Dale Earnhardt. Right. Yeah. Anybody else does that to Earnhardt, you know, they end up in one of his headlocks yeah. In, yeah. The, in the pits. But Richmond could get away with it. They loved racing each other. Wow. And Rick Hendrick liked that? I would have been fuming. <laughs> he, he said, yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Have you ever told the team owner you were going to hey, lose watch, your hey, lead, this. lose your lead, so you can screw with, around with like the with the guy they call the intimidator? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, watch this. I'm going to poke this ba- this bee's nest real quick. <laughs> so you wrote an article for Fox Sports a few years ago, um, chronicling a lot of the the famous Tim Richmond tales of the of the time. Um, We've discovered that people aren't too into talking about him even now, within reason. Um, why do you think people are so forthcoming? Like Rick Hendrick was, so, was very forthcoming with some of his stories to you. Why do you think that is the case? I've known Rick for a long time, and, and we have a good relationship, and I think that helped. And I think, I think the fact that I wrote it on the 25th anniversary of his death, that's a real fixed milestone. And I think maybe at that point in time, people were willing to be a little bit more forthright. I mean, I don't know. It helped that I was working at Fox because there were people like Larry McReynolds who worked with him on the crew and Jeff Hammond who was rivals with him. And, you know, those were guys I could go to and say, hey, tell me about Tim Richmond. And they would. And, um, you know, he, he, was just, he was just such a, a unique character in NASCAR. You know, there's been nobody to come along like him. And, and uh, it's so maybe the most interesting um, comment I got. And let me frame this by saying I started my research for that article on what if Richmond had lived? Would he and Earnhardt would have been the rivalry for all time? And I think you could make the case 
it would be. And Richard Childress said if Tim Richmond had lived, some drivers would have had fewer championships. He didn't say Dale Richard would have. Childress said this. Richard Childress wow. said this. Yeah. He said no. some drivers wouldn't have had the statistics they had. And I've heard other people tell me that. But that said, um, the most interesting comment I got on the rivalry thing is I was kind of operating under the assumption, well, had Richmond stayed healthy and stayed with Hendrick Motorsports, he could have won three or four or five championships himself. And Humpy Wheeler told me he would have never won a championship. He said he would have been like Curtis Turner. He would have won a ton of races and had a ton of DNFs because he would run the car, run the wheels off the car. And, you know, there's that scene in Days of Thunder, do 50 laps my way and then, or do 50 laps your way and then do 50 laps my way with, with Harry Hogg, the, the Harry Hyde character. And, you know, that, that's what Richmond was. Now, he had, he had learned racecraft by the time he, he passed away. But I still think maybe he would have been somebody who would have simply won a lot of races and not championships. No way to know. So the obvious folklore on Tim is that he was a party animal. You know, he was always out for the good time and out late and things like that. But also, like, he took his racing seriously. I think you wrote a story about how he lost to Daryl Waltrip. At Riverside. Riverside. Yeah. And he went in the, in the holler and cried. Like, after the race, he's devastated. Because he thought he let the team down. Yeah. He was a complicated guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ra- racing mattered to him, but it, it, a lot of people just saw the party side of sure, him. Sure, sure. And uh, not, the, not the intense racer, but mm-hmm. boy, was he talented. Yeah. He could do things with a race car that a lot of people couldn't. Yeah. So, what was the Winston? The Winston was NASCAR's all star race. Okay. And at first, it began in 1985, and at first, it was only. A very small group of racers. I believe it was the guys who'd won races that year or the year before. It was only 10 or 12 guys. It started off very small, and then it it morphed into something much bigger, especially once they, in 92, when it went to a night race. Then it became a big deal. And it became a big deal, I guess, too, in 87, the third year with Earnhardt's pass in the grass when he beat Bill Elliott and his crew and Elliott's crew and Jeff Bodine's crew all got in a big tussle. Yeah. So very popular race. So what kind of promotion would have been done around that event? Like the poster that they took, and they did this for years, as, as I understand it, would be sent out to just all over the place. Well, R.J. Reynolds, the presenting sponsor of NASCAR at the time, had limitations to where they could advertise because of tobacco laws. And they put a ton of money into racing. I mean, they put a ton of money into NASCAR because it became their marketing vehicle. And so they, they gave out promotional posters. They did hero cards. They did everything they could legally do to promote the sport they did. Right. When I mentioned to you the Tim Richmond poster... Do you know what I'm referring to? There is a legend that um, Tim Richmond exposes himself in the poster. There are also there is also a legend that he sticks his thumb through his uniform to appear that he's exposing himself. And there's also 
a version of it that he sticks the end of his cane through there because he was he didn't want people to see the cane and he has a cane in in, in that theory because he's sick and right. you know the whole nine yards right i i have no idea what's true yeah. and and to be perfectly honest when you look in a world where we live week to week and what's the storyline in in this week's race and and you know racers and the racing community thinks race to race you don't you don't go in on monday thinking about the race four races from now you think about where you're going to run on saturday and so that's kind of the way i worked as a journalist too and i was a journalist motorsports for more years than i care to remember so i never much gave it any thought i mean yeah i heard the rumors and i've heard people say oh i know it's this and i know it's right. that but it's just like i had real news to work <laughs> yeah it's not a big yeah exactly you know, you know so and, and it is what it is and so it wouldn't it wouldn't have changed what i wrote about or reported about one way or the other sure. so i never invested a lot of time in research into finding out about <laughs> it you didn't decide to drive around the country with your friend and dedicate a whole tv show to it no no <laughs> didn't come up no oh but i've i've i'm sure i've done some some interesting things right that, that would match that sure but. sure um so it's interesting to us that when you read some of the comments online about what it could or couldn't be how very determined people are to explain that it's definitely not himself that he's exposing but it's like the cane or the thumb why do you think that is like, because to me, it seems like everything I've read about the guy and seen in interviews and stuff, he was a crazy party guy. Like, it's well possible that he would do that. But when you read some of the comments online, people are like, that's absolutely not it. There's no way it's that. It's definitely a cane. It's definitely his thumb. What do you think that is? My personal opinion is I, I doubt he would have actually done that. Really? Because I think there would have been enough... There could have potentially been big fallout, big fallout, yeah. and, and enough trouble. No pun intended. But I do know this: on the internet, everybody is right one hundred percent of the time. Absolutely. And I've seen, I've seen people deny things that are that are undeniable, mm-hmm. and. You know, they want to believe. And, and and plus, for some people, it's really important to be right. You know, I I have staked out this ground and my reputation yeah, right. on it by taking position X. Right. So by God, I'm going to I'm going to, you know, I'm going to I'm going to ride that horse till it falls over <laughs> and to mix metaphors horribly. <laughs> and and you got to remember, too, with Tim Richmond, he is a mythical character. Mm-hmm. He is an X rated unicorn. Exactly right. So people want to believe they either want to believe he was really good or they want to believe he was really bad and doing something he, sh- he shouldn't be. So it's easy it's easy to, to make up the myth in your mind. Right, right. Do you think Tim Richmond could, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's in the similar scope as like a Smokey Eunuch. Uh, could he exist today? Yeah, I think he could in, in the right situation. I think he could. There, you know, there are some guys... Um, who have gotten away with with more aggressive behavior than others. The Bush brothers, you know, they, they've they've each had their moments where where they 
raised some cane. Tony Stewart, you, you know, he did some things that got people shaking their heads. But, but you know, in, in all those cases, you get those guys away from the heat of the moment in the racetrack. They're all good guys. But just, just people get real, real fired up. So, yeah, I think, but it has to be the right combination of team and sponsor, and it has to be the right fit. You couldn't necessarily, you know, would Tim Richmond fit in at Roger Penske? I don't think so. Because Roger, and, and this is no disrespect to Roger, but Roger runs a pretty button-down operation. Yeah, and they seem to be sort of successful, so maybe just keep yeah. doing what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> Why it, risk it, it all for Tim Richmond? Yeah, yeah. it, it kind of works. And, you know, you, you think about maybe, you know, maybe he'd be, be a better fit with, with, I don't know, with a Chip Ganassi. Or, yeah, it's a perfect or a example, stu- A Stuart Haas. There's, oh, hell yeah. There's where he'd be a good fit. Yep, no question. Tim Richmond would be a good fit at Stuart Haas. Tony Stewart would definitely hire Tim Richmond. Today. Yeah. Yeah. So. It, I guess the surprising thing to me in the, in the overall story of Tim Richmond is that Rick Hendrick, of all people, especially with our history of having, like, a couple like of their people on, they've been very critical of, like, what we do and don't say by far the most, including teams like Penske, who didn't really have a whole lot of feedback for us. And to read Rick Hendrick's quotes about Tim, he he basically said, like, I I could see the talent, and I felt like I could kind of keep him between the ditches, is I think his quote, whereas he doesn't think he could take a guy that's very buttoned up, not talented, and make him go win championships. The phrase I've, I've heard Rick use and others use is you can woe down a racehorse, but you can't make a mule run fast. Yeah. Something to that that extent, and and that's what Richmond was. And what's once, excuse me, once Richmond and Harry Hyde got all their BS out of the way, once they got their their their, I got to prove I'm the man mm-hmm. to each other, and they made peace with each other. They made magic together. Yeah. They won a bunch of races. Once Tim trusted Harry, and once Harry knew that that Tim was listening to him. Man, they could go anywhere and win. Mm-hmm. They were really, really good together yeah. once they hit that point. So uh, we, we go to do the Alan Kowicki video, and we had people jumping up and down to talk to us, and it was really great. We mentioned the Tim Richmond poster, and we can't get a call back. Why do you think that is? Well, the, post, the poster is controversial. I don't think there's any question about that. And I think... And I want to stress, I have never given it two minutes of thought, whether it's real, whether it's fake, whether it's doctored, whether it's retouched, whatever it is. Right. And I don't really care. But I think if somehow it were to come out that it were true, I think people would be mortified to be associated <laughs> with it. Okay. And, and understandably so. And, and I just I just don't know. Right.
Oh my mind, it's a thing of gold All I'll do is win, all I'll do is win 